Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com. May I don't I didn't sleep very well last night, so maybe I'm just emotional cuz I'm tired or I know that's not true. I'm just an emotional guy. But um, I don't know how I've fooled you all for these years. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I, I am just, I'm so grateful to be here. Um, I do feel like we should do that, the wedding thing that doesn't ever actually happen, where if anyone has any objections, maybe we should. No? Jay, I, Jason, I knew. I give, I give Jason a chance to make fun of me, and he's going to take it 10 out of 10 times. Um, no, I, I don't know how to express to you uh, just how humbled I am, um, how excited I am to be a part of this family. Um, I, I know, like, a, a new pastor should be like, yeah, I'm excited, and I'm going to, like, pave the way. And I, but I've told you guys, and I want to be honest, like, through this process. I, I, people have asked me how I'm feeling, and I'm like, man, I'm excited to do the work. I'm a little nervous that I'm the one doing it. Um, but I am just, like, I don't know. Maybe I will. How, how can I fail in this community? Like, you guys just love me so well. Um, you love us so well. And I'm just so excited to serve alongside of you. Um, I just, yeah, it's, it's, it's just so exciting. I don't know. Um, regardless of whether or not Tiana's here this morning, she skipped my, my opening week. Um, <laughs> kidding, she had some things going on. Um, but uh, we, just so you guys know, too, um, you know, Tiana and I have talked about, like, what this process is going to look like. I think people might even be not concerned, but, like, interested in, like, what is it going to look like for us as a team, right? Um, we are going to have a time of just, like, Q&A for me, for our team of just, like, what, what does it look like moving forward, right? And so we'll do that. Um, we're going to have, like, a, an intro to Missio Day class for people who want to become partners. Um, and even, I think, at the beginning of that week, that's in May, late May, I think, um, we'll have an opportunity for people to ask questions and, and really just, like, curiosity of like, what is our vision? Where are we going? How are we going to work together as a team? Um, so I wanted to throw that out there. But you guys know I did not come to talk about myself, right? So let's go ahead and get into it. A kingdom was losing its leader. The, not, the loss was not because of anything the king had done. He had just lost his ability to lead in his old age. He was the one spoken of from a young, young age. The hype of the coming king was far too great for any one person to, ha- person to handle, and yet he exceeded even the wildest of expectations. His reign lasted 21 years, far longer than many of his contemporaries, but the time to hang it up was coming quickly. He was not the greatest king we had ever seen, but I admit he came close, and even though the Lakers are still technically in the playoffs. We can all see that King James, LeBron, uh, is no longer ruling the kingdom that is the National Basketball Association. Amen. Amen. Yep. Now, for those of you who don't necessarily love sports, just bear with me for a minute, okay? You'll, you'll see where I'm going. Um, but as is the case with the end of many kingdoms, even as the king reigns, as he comes to his final years, Those who talk about the kingdom project who will be our next king, right? As Jordan was ending, who's our next? 
and it was Kobe. As Kobe, Kobe was ending, who is next? It's been LeBron. Now, if we're being completely honest, no one in stature, resume, pre-NBA hype gets to the level that LeBron got. LeBron was like otherworldly level of hype. But very few in history have reached that hype, right? And if you're really pushing people on who will dominate for the next 10 years, the answer is probably Giannis with maybe some other people thrown in. But for the sake of the, uh, the sermon this morning, and you don't need to know anything about basketball because don't worry, I'm going to walk you through it. I want to tell you the story of a man who fascinates me. In the 2019 NBA draft, just a few years ago, many projected our next LeBron had arrived. Uh, the hype for Zion Williamson, who actually is not the man that captures my attention, was out of control. And too, true tanking for him, like losing on purpose, was obnoxious and obvious. He was, once the 2018 NBA draft ended, he was the first overall pick in the 2019 draft. And it was a wrap. It would take a catastrophic, of a, a catastrophic event for that to change. However, Zion's career has been injury-riddled and mostly di disappointing. But a man in the same draft class has captured the attention of those who follow the NBA. And his name is Ja Morant. No Ja Morant fans in the crowd. Um, for those who don't follow the NBA, Ja Morant plays for the Memphis Grizzlies. Uh, they're located in Memphis. Um, thank you. They have garnered, <laughs> thanks Henry. Um, they have garnered a reputation as a young, gritty team. They're the villains of the league is sort of their position, right? They're similar to those in the early 90s Detroit Piston bad boys, but not necessarily as good and not necessarily as likable. Um, and they're all led by this man, Ja Morant. Now, Ja is high-flying, athletic, plays above the rim, means he dunks a lot, uh, truly a good underdog story. He was lightly recruited out of high school, ended up going to Murray State, which is not known for their basketball program, or maybe anything, I'm not sure. No offense to those who went to Murray State. Um, he, he ended up, though, being selected as the second overall pick in the NBA draft behind Prince Zion himself. And immediately, well, Zion didn't basically play, but he won Rookie of the Year. But then last year, his third season in the league, he won All-NBA team, first team All-NBA team, which means he's one of the five best players in the NBA. And yet, in a matter of few months, these previous few months, this year, at age 22, Jaw saw much of his world coming apart. Uh, a couple of events happened. He filmed himself with a gun in a nightclub. He got in a physical altercation with a teenager at a park, and all of this resulted in a suspension for him from the NBA. And while these shortcomings weren't events that were necessarily like enormous in nature, right, the NBA watching world was upset. You turn on any major sports news outlet on, and they were talking about Jaw and his behavior. Charles Barkley said, it's time for Ja Morant to grow up, right? Shaq said that he, you can't give people a reason to take away what you would work for, and Ja was giving them that reason. But why were so many people in the NBA watching world upset at some sins that didn't seem like enormous in nature? I think in large part, and here's our, here's our point for those who stopped listening, I think in large part it's because his practice did not align with his position, Regardless of whether it's right or whether people want it or not, when you are an NBA superstar, there comes particular expectations, right? And Jaw was not living up to those expectations, even outside of the court with, it, with his character. We all know the story, don't we? 
the young, upcoming prince who can't get out of his own way. When their traits do not match their title, when their practice does not match their position, when they have been given the throne and throw it away in self-indulgence. Now, I should be clear with Jah, he has apologized, he's been reinstated, he has taken steps, therapy and otherwise, to get better, to maybe see some of his behavior change. And I do hope he, and pray he has an illustrious career because he is super fun to watch and a super fun character, personality. But I wanted to talk about this this morning to illustrate this. We Christians have been given a calling that far exceeds the way we often talk about it. And if I'm being honest, I think in particular the American church can be really good about talking about our position in Jesus, our orthodoxy. We can talk theology for hours, but I think we stink at orthopraxy. I think we are terrible at practicing those beliefs. And so, this morning, I want to talk about us like the fallen prince, in possession of a title and yet so often lacking the traits of the prince. And so we're going to be jumping back into Ephesians after our brief stint away uh, for Easter. And I want us to consider this, that our practice, the way we live, our practice is a product of our position. But before I do that, let me pray. Lord, I pray this morning uh, that you are glorified, not me, Lord. Uh, that whatever words are remembered are from you, are not from me. Lord, and that we can have eyes to see and ears to hear what you have for this morning. So help me to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Your sins name I pray. Amen. Okay, uh, I know I have some friends here. I have some friends watching. Hi, Mikey and Danny. Um, I'm on TV. Um, <laughs> Facebook Live, it's the same thing. Um, but So you haven't been with us through this series. So what are we doing? Well, we took a big old break for Easter, but we previously we had been working through the book of Ephesians, right? And I already mentioned this, uh, but we, we, before Easter, looked at the first three chapters of the book. And, our, uh, and over the next couple of months leading into summer, we're going to work through chapters four through six. And this was not just like an, a, a random selection of we're going to do one th- half the book and then half the book, right? It was an incredibly intentional selection. Because the way that Ephesians is structured, the, the first three chapters, one through three, look very, very different than the chapters four through six. And I preached on this um, a couple of months ago at this point, uh, but we're going to sort of reorient ourselves to what that structure is for this morning. Chapters one through three, the chapters we have already looked at, are often called the indicative chapters. What is true of Christians as a result of who Jesus is and what he did for us, Right? Another way I worded this was our position in Christ. Generally, orthodoxy, right? Good identity theology that we are known and we are loved by God. In the next three chapters, chapters four through six, which we are kicking off this morning, are the imperative chapters. How must we live as a result of these indicatives, right? Like what is imperative of our life? How do we live that way? I said they often give us instructions for our current condition, a.k.a. the truth about actually where we are. So, orthopraxy. Here's another way to see the structure. There are 41 imperatives in the book of Ephesians. 41, right? Those are commands on how to live rightly. Does anyone have a guess as to how many are in chapters 1 through 3? One. Yeah, Jamie said one and not zero, everyone. Um, Yes, there's one 
imperative in all of chapters of 1 through 3, and then 40 in chapters 4 through 6, right? And do you know what that one is? It's remember that you at one time were without Christ. So even the command in chapters 1 through 3 is identity-related, right? Remember that this was true and this is now true. And so I don't even know if I should count it as like a command, right? But it is. Why is the book structured like this? Well, lucky for you, potentially, uh, that's where we're going to be digging into this morning. I believe all of Ephesians itself illuminates two reasons as to why God would use Paul to structure a letter, a letter like this. Um, now, I do want to preface this by saying that next week we're going to dig quite a bit more into the specific uh, verses that Lida read for us, um, and we're going to really talk about like, what that looks like. But for now, I want to set up the rest of our series by predominantly looking at verse 1 of chapter 4. So we're just going to look for the next couple of minutes at one verse. That verse, Ephesians 4.1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Okay, that's where we're going to stop, right? Now this word for being, or this verse, sorry, for being only 24 words is packed to the brim with goodness, right? So let's look at some of those words. First two words, I, therefore. A great question, you guys have heard this before, but when you come across the word therefore is to ask the question, what is therefore, therefore, right? Therefore, refer, some of you haven't heard it before, cool. Um, <laughs> therefores refer backwards, right? There's, they're usually uh, included in a statement of cause and effect. This is true, therefore do this, right? And this, therefore, is no different. It is, it is a, a cause and effect statement. You see, this, therefore, is doing all of the work of relating chapters 1 through 3 two chapters, four through six. Paul is using it to say, because of what I just said, let us do this. Okay, you with me? Okay, one of you are. Um, so, let's go ahead. Like, I want to recap, like, what was it that Paul said in chapters one through three that was the cause, right? Like, this is true, therefore do this. Um, I have the, the list here. Um, I know usually when our slides are small, it's because I went from PowerPoint to whatever program we use, I forget. But um, this is intentional to show you. Uh, you can sit back for a minute because I'm going to read through everything that Paul says, his words, what, uh, what he says is true of us, okay? And I'm not even going to qualify these. You ready? What is true of followers of Jesus in verses one, or chapters 1 through 3? That we are saints, blessed with every spiritual blessing, chosen, holy and blameless before him, loved, he says that one a lot, predestined, adopted, in him, redeemed, forgiven, lavished in grace, made known his will, united to him, the praise of God's glory, that one's wild, sealed with the Holy Spirit, loved again, alive, saved, raised up and seated in the heavenly realms, his workmanship, his poema, created for good works, brought near to God, reconciled to God and each other. We have access to the Father. We are citizens of God's kingdom. We are members of God's household. We are part of the holy temple. We are heirs. 
We are partakers of the promise. We are knowers of God's wisdom. We have boldness and access to God. Christ dwells in our hearts. We are rooted and grounded in love. We are knowers of God's immeasurable love, and we are filled with all the fullness of God. I'm the only one that came to worship this morning because, apparently, because that is, like, exciting to me, no? Like, you guys can, yeah. Come on, Derek. I thought I could count on you. Um, I mean, I know I started this by saying we talked a little bit more about positional theology than orthopraxy, but, like, come on, can you blame us when this is what the Bible says is true of us? Do you realize how radical this picture is? Like, this is all true about us, and, and also because of that, like, what does this say then about God, right? The God who created the universe, who knows every star in every galaxy, the God who holds the breath of every living creature in his hand. He knows us, and he loves us, right? So when Paul says, therefore, he is saying what I'm about to say can be said because of all of this, Right? Now, this already preaches by itself, doesn't it? Like, I don't have to do much work this morning. Therefore, because of all of this calling, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Because this is true, act like it, right? Which begins to point to the first reason Paul structured Ephesians the way he did. The structure points to an everlasting truth about our relationship with God. Our relationship starts with grace and a repositioning of us. That grace, that free gift that comes with being a follower of Jesus is to be called the daughters and sons of the living God. And then, as a result of that position, as a result of the titles we are given, as a result of everything I read to you being true about us, we are called then to right living, right? So this is why Ephesians is structured like this. First reason, our obedience, our good works flow from salvation, not the other way around, right? Our obedience flows from salvation. Our obedience does not lead to our salvation, because if that were true, we should not have met last week, right? We should not have celebrated the risen Christ because he would have died for nothing. It would have been pointless, would it not? And so our obedience does not lead to our salvation, but our salvation leads to obedience, right? And this is why the gospel of Jesus, what he has done for us is good news, No, I think that even on our best days, the days we knock it out of the park, we fall short of our own standards for living, not just God's, right? I like plan out a big day to do a bunch of things, and I do half of them, and then I feel good, right? And and so, if we were judged based on our right living, of being worthy, of being in a relationship with God, there's not one person in this room or otherwise who would be worthy of that relationship, God uses Paul to structure Ephesians to point to us to grace. Grace not as a thing, but as a person in Jesus, right? He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. There are many of you in this room carrying the burden of self-righteousness. I need to be good in order to be loved, right? I need to be right in order to be right with God. And I hope you hear this rightly, beloved. You will never be good enough. You can never work yourself in favor with God. And yet, he does not ask us to be good enough, right? 
He just, ex- he just asks us to accept the free gift of grace. So lay down the burden of self-righteousness. Now, because we have been made right by Jesus, because, led, because God led with grace, can't, though, we just keep on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means, right? This is why Paul wrote Ephesians 4.1, that call to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. We have, included, we have been included in the very household of God, and we can act like it, right? Howard Thurman says it like this, a crown is placed over our heads that for the rest of our lives we are trying to grow tall enough to wear it. That crown is already there, right? Now all we got to do is grow into it. Okay, so that's our first point. Let's get back to our, pe- our text. Um, a quick aside here, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, right? I just wanted to remind you that this was not a metaphor. Paul was literally in prison, right? Uh, he was literally a prisoner because he was a Christian of the empire of Rome, right? And he wanted to include this in the call to walk worthily because he is walking worthily despite circumstance. He is saying, it cost me my freedom, right? And it might, to you, it might for you as well, but it is still worth it, right? I, I wanted to include this quickly because I remember as I was preaching last week, I was talking about God defeating death and permeating death no longer having a hold on us, right? I think a misconception of that can be like, well, my life is going to be good because I, I now follow God. And that is like health and wealth stuff that is not tr- necessarily promised on this side of eternity, right? Like your life is going to be better just by being in relationship with God, right? Uh, be it joy, things like that. But the reality is like our circumstances might still suck, Right? Um, so I just wanted to throw that out there, um, and hopefully we can see that it is still worth it, still worth following Jesus. Okay, back to the verse. I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So we've talked a lot about this idea of, like, I'm urging you to walk worthily of the calling to which you have been called, right? But we have not spent any time talking about what worthily looks like, Right? What is worthy of the calling that we have been called to? What could be worthy, what, what kind of lifestyle could be worthy of being called the daughter or son of God? Which brings us, and we're, gonna, we're about to get to it, to the second reason, hey Carmen, uh, why Ephesians is structured um, this way. It, I alluded to this, but chapters 1 through 3 show us a lot more than what is true of us, Right? In showing us what is now true of us, what it really does is it points to God and what is true of him, right? What is, what is true? I want you to think about this. What is true of someone who is known by their being a daughter or son? They have a father and mother uh, in this scenario, a parent, right? And when someone is primarily known by that daughterhood or sonhood, it says a lot about that particular parent, does it not? I think about when I go home uh, to my hometown, and my dad, like, essentially runs the water in our small 900-person town, Um, and I'll be, like, go to the store, and they'll be like, oh, you're Jim's kid, right? And that carries with it some sort of weight. For some people, it might be negative. For some people, it might be positive. But I, in that space, am Jim's kid, right? That's why I still go by Jimmy, by the way. He's still alive. Um, But, sorry, it was a little too dark. Um, So, so when we, our, our primary identity 
is identity as daughters and sons of God, that points to the Father, right? That says something in particular about him. And what does the fatherhood of God show? Well, if we are loved, saved, delighted in, reconciled, you pick your poison, right, of what I read earlier, then God is loving, saving, delighting in, reconciling, etc., right? God is a good, good father who delights in his children, and he has been delighting in his child for eternity, right? Delighting forever in Jesus, and as a result of that delight, his outgoing, overpouring, lavish nature results in us being loved by him as well, right? But why does that point to the structure of Ephesians? Why is that important to what uh, we're talking about this morning? Because in showing us the nature of our Father first, it is showing us what is true of our nature and how to live like it, right? In other words, in revealing what God is like, it reveals what we ought to be like. God loves you, therefore love. God forgives you, therefore forgive. Christ came to serve us and not to be served, therefore serve others, right? Look at the rest of the verses in our passage today to see this at work. And just know, again, we're going to be diving into these later this week, but I want to give us a first pass here before we really look at what this looks like. Okay, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Here it is. With all humility, with gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. You get the ones, right? I, I actually laugh at this passage often because um, I think in my imagination what I picture, I can imagine the sort of like John Wayne Christianity that is often pumped up in our American churches. You th- and you take that verse one, uh, it, it's like super, it can be militant, right? Like, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then I think a lot of our churches will stop there, right? Because then you keep going, and then it's like, you know, patriarchy, or whatever. Um, but then you like keep reading, and it's like, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Humbly, gently, right? In love, eager to maintain unity, right? Like, that is wild. That is a wild call, is it not? And it's pretty funny, but how beautiful is it? Because like, what does it point to us? Like, we're being called to be like God, are we not? And so when we're called to humility and gentleness, right? Think about the humility that that God, who did not think of himself, but he heard the cries of his people, right? In humility. And instead of cutting those people off, as maybe he had the right to do in gentleness, he took on flesh, right? In patience, he bore our sins, right? In love, he he saw us and he went to the cross and died a death that he did not deserve right next to two thieves, right? Like, all of this is pointing to what God has already done for us, the way that God already is. And so when we're saying walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, it's, it's just asking you to be like your dad, right? To be like your father. The worthy of part of the calling to which we have been called is a life marked by radical love, one marked by unintelligible sacrifice, 
one marked by bearing our crosses or our prisons or the whatever the world might throw at us, right? Just so others might know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and understand the idea of being beloved. The worthy life loves God and loves other people, right? And here's what is wild about this call, and this is how I'm going to end this morning. We were not left on our own to live that worthy life, right? One of the identity markers that we talked about earlier in Ephesians is found in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. I'll read it for you. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are in God's possession to the praise of his glory. In other words, we received the Spirit upon salvation, right? The Spirit was at work in our salvation and testifies to our identity as daughters or sons of God. But our access to the Spirit does not stop at salvation, right? Look at angry Paul in uh, Galatians 3.3 as he talks of the believer's experience with the Spirit. Are you so foolish? After beginning by the means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? In other words, the Galatians knew that they were saved by grace and through the Spirit, right? That their justification was by God through the Spirit. But now, in trying to live obediently and trying to live a life worthy of the calling to which they have been called in their sanctification, they were trying the grit and bear approach, or the white knuckle approach, right? If I try harder, I will be better. I'm going to grow in my obedience by working really hard. But beloved, that is another burden that we were not meant to bear. This works about as well as trying to save ourselves. Meaning it does not work, right? But again, this is good news. The good news of the gospel is not that we were just given the means by which we re-enter relationship with God. It is also that we were given the means to walk in that relationship with God. Namely, the Spirit. A.K.A. we have the capacity to walk in obedience with God. And that capacity is empowered by the Spirit, who is himself God. God saves us, and God keeps us. God justifies, and God sanctifies. Again, I know many of you are holding that burden uh, onto yourselves, right? But again, I am calling you to lay down the burden of self-dependence. It is a heavy burden, and Jesus promises what? That his burden is light, and his yoke is easy, right? God's call in our lives to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called is a good calling. It is a life-abundant calling and one that I pray we can walk in together. Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com.